Hello friends, welcome or welcome back if you're a first time listener. This is The Overview Effect with James Perrin. This is my podcast. I'm James Perrin. And it's it's been less than a month since I launched this podcast. Can you believe it? It feels like in the world these days, time goes by so fast. It's crazy. It's It's been less than a month since I launched this podcast. I launched it with a few episodes to start with. I had a follow-up episode two weeks ago with Pete Siglinski from Seabin. And look, I just want to say again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to everyone that's listened, everyone that's given me feedback, everyone that's given me um, kind words. I've just got to say, I'm really so pleased with the response um, this is a fun side project for me and, you know, let's see where it goes. But I'm just absolutely blessed to be able to sit down and have conversations with people. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about stepping back and having big picture conversations uh, about nature and community in particular. And that is absolutely what happens with this conversation with my guest today. She is a powerful and rising voice in the world of activism, indigenous human rights, of questioning societal's paradigms and norms. She's someone who has this really profound ability to ask questions that will make you think about how different our world can be. She asks questions that get straight to the heart of what's actually truly meaningful and important to us, and why do we live the way that we do? We talk about her experience as a child being shown two completely different ways of living. You know, one as a quote-unquote normal Western societal way of living, and one a tapping into indigenous ways of life in a remote part of Australia. We talk about decolonization and what that means and what that is. And we talk on a much deeper level, something that I hope for you listeners taps into something that's not just about indigenous and Aboriginal issues, but on a much deeper way, is about just the way we live in society as a whole. You know, why? Why do... What's truly important to us? What truly matters to us? And from that, how should we be living? You know, what should we value? And how should we be shaping our society? So, look, I'm just really blessed to be able to have conversations like these and I haven't done this for my last few episodes, and I absolutely will going forward, but this podcast was recorded on Bunjalung land, and I would like to pay my, my deep respects to past, present, and emerging elders and members of the Bunjalung community, and just express my gratitude for being able to be here, being able to be on this land and this country, and to be able to be doing what I'm doing and having conversations like this. That's all from me from this introduction. Let's get straight into the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy the radical perspective, the necessary perspective of Ella Noah Bancroft. on what I think is a way forward. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Um, I'm going to start by... Actually, I'm just going to quickly start by saying um, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining. Um, but I'm really conscious that of the sense of irony in me saying welcome because here I am as a... Um, you know, white male sitting on Bunjalung land saying welcome to you. I wonder if um, maybe you could start by just kind of bringing us 
here to this place? Sure. Um, you know, I think paying respects to Indigenous elders, past and present, um, paying respects to the land in which we stand and and really emphasizing the importance of the land and the soil and the natural environment and really walking in that respect is important. Um, this is Bunjalung Nation and I acknowledge all of the clans that came to Cabin Bar, now known as Byron Bay, um, as a meeting place and I acknowledge Indigenous people all around the world who are continuing to fight to keep culture alive and also pay my respects and acknowledge our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters who stand aside us to fight for things that are much bigger than we may even understand in this lifetime. Beautiful. Thank you. And thank you again so much for joining me. Um, so the show is called The Overview Effect and the inspiration behind it is um, this profound experience that astronauts describe when they first view Earth from space and they describe it as you know, seeing our home, seeing how connected and um, how we are part of the earth, you know, how there are not these national boundaries and the divisiveness that our culture and society creates um, and that many of them describe it as coming back and having this real paradigm shift and change in kind of consciousness and the way that they see the world. So I wanted to start by asking you if there's been a time in your life a moment or a period of time where you've experienced something and it has had one of those kind of profound experiences that shapes the way that you see the world. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, just as you were saying that, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, at the age of six, I I was born in Sydney in a house and grew up in Sydney until I was six. And at six years old, my mother decided to take me and my brother back to country. Um, back to country for us is three hours inland from Byron, um, outside of Grafton. And it's very much a off-the-grid establishment. And I say that before off-the-grid was trendy, um, uh, to a home that my grandfather and my great-uncle built as Aboriginal men. Wow. And a home that is on our ancestral lands. And going back there was one of the most profound moments of my childhood, understanding that you didn't really need electricity. Um, we didn't have kind of running water systems. We were an hour away from any shop, including, you know, a shop to buy milk or bread um, or any town. And we started to live a life that was as close to being back to nature as we could while being, you know, pretty from the city. Mm. Um, luckily, we had my my great uncle, who was my grandfather's brother, to guide us through that and be our elder and show us the ways to walk on country and take us back to our sacred sites. And that, for me, was a definitive moment in my story, um, in my identity, in my connection to the earth around me. And my mum had always kind of growing us up with a strong cultural identity and around like a strong understanding of our relationship to the natural earth through her artwork. But the experience of going home and, and having that really land in myself was the most profound part of my life, I think. Oh, totally. I've got a, um, I've got a son who's six and he's like an absolute sponge just wants to absorb every single thing about at that age you know you, you you already learnt to talk and socialize and all those sorts of things you're used to your life and he's now at the age where he wants to learn about yeah society and culture and why things are the way they are so to have that experience at six would have been massive um how long were you there for um, we lived there for about two years and then my brother wanted, he's three years older than me, um, he wanted to return back to Sydney for a dream to play cricket for Australia um, and education also was a, played a big part because out there we were at the mission school um, 
you know, the school and the education system out there is, um, I guess, quite culturally rich, but in terms of being um, pinned up against what wider Australia would see as an educational um, facilities or or even, you know, be being that of learning proper numeracy and literacy, it was pretty severe. Right. Um, so after those years, we went back, me and my mum stayed there while my brother returned back to Sydney for about six months, but my mum didn't want us to have the broken family. So yeah, yeah, we, we returned shortly after him. And so what what was that like going back to Sydney at eight, eight, nine after that would have been like walking back into what we were just saying before we officially started the show, like even just going to Sydney from the Northern Rivers feels like walking into, you know, concrete and the consumerist and the, the the mass media cycle. Like what was that like coming off of a an Indigenous land site? Um, I mean, I remember being really resistant to it. I found a lot of comfort being back in country and I think that um, just within that community and the friendships with my cousins that I built um, was really profound for me. And uh, moving back to the city had big implication for me and my identity. Mm-hmm. I had a huge implication also with my ability to just step back into year four. Um, I suffered from, I guess, what they would call like dyslexia, um, but also was put in to the special ed classes um, right up until I was in year 10. So mm. my numeracy and literacy was significantly lower than that than other students of my age, um, but I don't see that as a problem because I gained knowledge and culture and connection to a place that my ancestors walked for a very long period of time. Totally. Totally. Just on the education front, we, um, I send my son to it. We send our son to a Steiner school and maybe not to the same, nowhere near to the same extent of being in and out of kind of the Western civilization, but there's some similarities there in that they don't learn literacy and numeracy and kind of facts and you know figures early they learn how to play and how to connect and you know how to be artistic and creative and quite often in those early years those kids are compared to one another compared to like kids in the kind of normal school system like oh even even um my neighbor who has a granddaughter similar age like oh well my my granddaughter can read this and do these times tables and it's like He'll catch up. You learn that stuff later. Like the really important stuff at that age is that sort of stuff. It shapes how you, who you are. Yeah, and and to be honest with you, I don't really use math so much in my life yeah. now. Even though I do think that I'm well versed across the board, but I um, definitely think that when I have a family, I'm going to be much more focused on my kids knowing how to build a garden and work and walk in nature than um, you know preparing them for slavery in the system that is against them. Well, I can tell you that I grew up in that full life of, life of academia and then went and did engineering and studied all sorts of things like heat transfer and fluid dynamics and stuff that I never use today and it was just wasted time in my life. So, yeah, those edu- the, the education system is a whole other tangent that we could go down and maybe we will, but I want to bring it back to um, – I guess I want to want to bring it to one thing that – you're really amazing and inspiring at is, you know, using your voice and being an advocate and an activist and hearing your story. I can, I can see totally how you got to where you are, but I guess coming back to that time when you, you came back to Sydney and went through growing up back in Sydney after living on the land, how quickly was that jump to becoming, I guess, an activist and an advocate for indigenous rights? Is that something that fostered pretty quickly or is it, kind of built up over time and you went, that's it, I'm stepping out of the matrix? Um, Well, I come from a strong matriarchal line of really fierce Indigenous women and I think in some way or another, um, 
you know, my activism stems off the work of what my mum has already done before me. And she is a leader and pioneer for Indigenous artists and female artists in her own right and has worked with grassroots communities since um, she was young. So in some way, you know, growing up with such a strong mother, um, she taught me the ways of activism, even though you may have not called it activism at that time. I think... Um, having a voice has been something that I've struggled to find, especially being a young woman, um, up until really my early twenties. And a lot of that was because I felt really quite confused around my culture, around my identity. Um, didn't feel that necessarily I was so valid or the person to speak out, but it wasn't until I started really putting a practice in place, um, a strong cultural and spiritual practice of returning to the land that I started to understand um, myself in the world, myself within my lineage, and to be able to deeply listen to my ancestors in that way. And I know I have incredible guides, you know, and I know that this is the work that I need to be doing. And, um, you know, in terms of becoming an activist, I think it's been 32 years of becoming one and I think I'm still very much like learning the spaces of, of standing up and, and having a voice but um, I guess what the difference is that I'm I'm now feel like I'm a strong initiated woman that I can do that mm. and maybe prior to, you know, that I felt like I was more like a girl. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting hearing you say that because um, I guess in very different ways I've felt similar, like we're a very similar age and um, finding your voice, you know, finding things that matter to you that you want to advocate for, that you believe in, that you want to share and actually step out of, put yourself out there and say this is who I am and this is what I stand for. That's That could be scary and talking about it, over a table or on a podcast, it's easy enough to say, yeah, that's what you need to do, but that's hard. That's hard in a system and a culture where it's layered, you're layered to be like this and you're nudged in this direction to be like this and that's the stereotype way that we're supposed to live, right? Um, on the on the activism front, I mean, it's it's something that's very much in the public space domain at the moment because of the Black Lives Matter movement in America, um, which has then jumped overseas to other parts of the world, including here, but not in the same way. But how do you see that movement? Is that been a – do you see that as a, a profound kind of line in the sand, like this is a step change in society's thinking, or do you think it's just a very small step and a much longer journey? Yeah, I think we have a long way to go. I think um – you know, in terms of Black Lives Matter and the judicial system, deaths in custody here in Australia, we can see the activists have been standing up and fighting out a about this for 50 years you know you look at Angela Davis and if you don't know her work she's an amazing African-American woman who um, is all about abolishing the prison system because it's a system that's actually built on the back of slavery and it is a perpetuation of slavery it's just under a different name for me I think that the Black Lives Matter movement and how that's then had a ripple effect into Indigenous Australia is that we're dealing with a much bigger picture, you know, which is a picture of why do Indigenous people end up in low socioeconomic situations where they feel that they have to turn to crime and then therefore end up being incarcerated more than any other um, race in mm. the country, uh, around the world, sorry. It's it, it's an in, entrenched in a system that essentially works and profits off the back of um, black and brown labour. And I'm not just talking about in this country, you know, um, mass production in countries overseas. You can um, see exploitation on the streets in, in, in Byron Bay and the mainstream kind of clothing companies that are put up there. So I think like rather than just seeing it as one movement, we have to start to understand that it, it, it is a system that that is about keeping people in a oppressed state and it is a system that relies on profit over people um, and over people and the planet's health. Mm. As you 
as you say that it reminds me of a um of a i guess a photo or an infographic that i saw which i guess helped to try to explain it because i think a lot of white people or people of european descent descent in western culture have kind of gone historically i'm not racist you know the classic i've got I've got lots of black friends. I've got, you know, I, I stand for equality, but maybe don't understand the depth of what you're talking about and a lot of what the protesters are talking about. And um, and one way that it was explained to me was there was this this photo and um, it's kind of got four squares or four frames to it and it's got a tree in the middle and there's a tree it leans to the left and on the left side is a white person and on the right side is a black person, right? And in the first frame, the white person is on a stepladder picking apples from the tree and the black person is on the ground and can't reach the tree because it's leaning the opposite way and that's inequality. In the second frame, the tree and the white person are the same but the black person now has the same size stepladder but where the white person can reach the apples, the black person still can't because the tree's bent to the left, right? And that one says equality. And I think that's where a lot of um, society has been recently, which is like same tools and access to resources, but the system is structured towards one way. In the third frame, now white person still on the step ladder reaching the apples. The black person is on a taller ladder and can reach the apples. And it says equity. And again, a lot of people I think are going, well, that's where we need to go. But you know that that looks like throwing more more government funding or trying to hit quotas for indigenous employment or whatever it is trying to create equity but it doesn't solve that underlying problem which is that fourth frame is where they've actually straightened the tree right and that's called justice is what it says and i know that's a really simplified way of explaining it but for me seeing that and then hearing a lot of what people were protesting about and talking about through the Black Lives Matter and um, and other protest movements, that was a really profound moment for me to go, okay, I think I, I'm starting to understand that it's not just about saying we're all equal or we should have the same opportunities because everything is geared towards white people in our modern society. Yeah, and also the system which has been fundamentally put in place often goes directly against what Indigenous law, L-O-R-E, is. And I think bigger picture than just justice is giving Indigenous people back the right to practice culture, to see that as as valid, if not more important to this country and our future than anything else. And that starts, you know, really with land. It starts a lot with like giving people back a sovereignty around their land and sovereignty and choice whether they want to be part of this, because this is an imposed system. Um, you know, when they brought in the, the Catholic Church and all the missionaries, that was an imposed system that fundamentally went against the core values of what indigenous lifestyle and living was back then. You know, and we're dealing with also serious amounts of um, traumatized intergenerational trauma where some people's grandparents are denied education. 67 was when we were actually allowed to be seen as part of the referendum, seen as part of a human being that could have a say in their own country. Like these, these things, um, they don't just disappear because you make a vote. You know, our grandparents feel them. We feel them because we're connected to our grandparents. We then feel that within the education system, you know, a lot of, um, indigenous kids that I've worked with and I've been a mentor for over 10 years now they don't live within the same construct of the nuclear family that's not the way mm. indigenous families are created you know and I think that there's a lot of things put in place that don't help to cultivate Indigenous culture. In fact, they make Indigenous people feel inferior and the only way that Indigenous people feel like they are successful is if it's pinned up and placed against the way that the Western society or the mainstream society sees success, mm. you know, and I'd like to see... I guess a fundamental core change that the way that we respect an indigenous elder for keeping language alive and they're seen just as, just as valid as the CEO of a Commonwealth bank. Mm. And they have just as much space to take up as that person. Yeah. Uh, yes to everything you've just said, because like it, it's, it's perpetuating the, um, I guess the institutionalized racism to assume 
that Indigenous people want the same thing that Western culture wants, right? When you have a big company like a, a Rio Tinto or whatever that says we want to hire X amount of Indigenous people, assuming that they want to be hired and be part of that organization is just perpetuating that myth, right? comes back to that whole, it's not even treat others how you want to be treated, it's treat others how they would treat themselves, right? Yeah, definitely. And also the Black Lives Matter movement has also seen this huge influence in people turning to Aboriginal people to now ask them, oh, what, what is connecting to country? What is culture? What does all of this mean to you? And you're asking like a nation of people who've been told for the last 200 years to dislocate from that, to not speak their language or they'll be punished, to basically remove themselves from anything that is their core values and belief systems and now we want to call on them to be our leaders and to pass on the messages Mm. and so that's really there's a big body of work there for the indigenous cultures to as you say your journey was to and still is to become find out who you are and find your voice and stand into that all of that's got to happen. We've got to allow the time and space for Indigenous cultures to do that before we can then go to them with our Western lens and say, how do we integrate Indigenous culture into Western society? Like that's a massive, that's a massive hurdle. How do we, what's the first step there? How do we, how do we approach that? What does Western culture and society need to do to start that process? I mean, it's such a big unraveling and dismantling of something that's, I think, um, put in place for the reason to break spirit and to break that kind of ability to learn. For me, um, I think a big part of it is supporting organizations um, that are Indigenous run that are looking to keep culture alive. And, um, you know, that is that is open for each listener to investigate for themselves. It's not about just finding the first Aboriginal person you know and ask them for what that the answers are. You know, there's so much pressure on Indigenous people right now in this current climate to have the answers. Also a lot of pressure for them to give up their time without any kind of monetary benefit, to give up their culture and language, to teach white people in a time where um, Indigenous people actually need space to be able to mourn what's going on and be able to grieve and be able to bring back ritual. And I think it's a delicate space because I don't speak for every Aboriginal Mm. person. I think it's about maybe asking what do you need to your Aboriginal friends or or the people who are Indigenous in your life and actually ask each individual what they're needing Mm. because everyone is so different. If you ask me what I would need, you know, I, I think for me my emphasis is returning to country. It's to connecting Indigenous and non-Indigenous people back to that. But my Indigenous issues are directly linked to my envir- environmental activism. And that's the path that I walk down. And that might not be everyone's path, but it is about the time to just ask questions and listen to them. Mm. Even as you say that, I'm reflecting and going, like even me inviting you here to be part of the show, I'm, I've done exactly that, you know, even gone, well, okay, I, how, do I, how do I approach the subject? Well, I'm going to invite someone in to donate her time to try to educate me and the, and the listeners. But um, even that is, I'm understanding, is... Um, is almost us taking like how can we how can we take that knowledge for ourselves right how can we understand give us the knowledge whereas as you say how what do you need what can we give i think there's a broader element of selfishness in um in our entire society and culture like you mentioned environmentalism all of that stems from what can i take what can i take from the land what can i take from the world um, colonization was how can we take more how can we gain access to more resources more land how in australia we need to be able to send our convicts somewhere so we're going to send them to that land overseas it's, it's all about me and i guess that comes back to the inspiration and exploration for um this podcast which is that 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 overview effect that broader view of going it's not about what can i take 
from the world or what can we take from one another because we are the world. We are part of it and we're only here for such a brief moment in time, like 70, 80, 90 years, whatever, however long we live for is such a, a, a blip on the radar sitting in that space of what what's in it for me when you look at that time scale it just seems crazy and i hope that um this moment in time it certainly i think for me has been a profound moment of stepping back and breathing and just sitting in that space of going well what is the bigger picture and how do we how do we all fit in because we're not we're not disconnected, we're together. And I guess coming back to your culture, I, th- I feel like that's something that there is a real need to for broader society to learn about what the strengths are and what that culture was like and how traditional Indigenous cultures used to live and live into that space because it's really only been, what, 200, 250 years since everything changed. I mean, when you were living on on country, did you feel like those constructs were broken down? Did you feel like it was a completely different way of living? Or were you still within the confines of Western culture? I mean, um, yes and no. I mean, having my, um, having my great uncle, you know, take us th- – through country we were still on a horse you know so there's still that element but um it was also living 20 minutes from a local mission and I think understanding that missions are still very much alive today that indigenous people have been displaced all around this world placed in places on the fringes of society and have been left there you know and when I think about the mission that's close to where my family um, ancestral lands are, you know, for me, those people feel like the forgotten people and they're just one of many missions all around Australia. And I think the, the issue is that we don't see them. So the ignorance mm-hmm. is bliss in that space, you know. But when I go home, there is a collection of Indigenous elders out there, you know, with no access to health. There used to be a healthcare bus that would go out there once a month that funding got cut more than 10 years ago you have indigenous elders living out on country who don't have access to vehicles who can go into town one community bus that gets them into town but they can only spend half a day often they're doing their groceries you know there's there's much bigger things at hand and indigenous people have to face these kind of battles of just putting food on the table day to day you know and and try to have to go against their traditional ways of living to even be seen as as a human being in this society so i guess that impacted my life just as much as walking on country was also seeing how colonization and a direct impact had affected my family and um, created these places of the forgotten people. Mm. So when you talk about, you talk a lot about decolonization and decolonization what does that mean for you because i reckon there are quite a few people that would hear that and think well colonization was the first fleet this this idea of pilgrims and ships coming to a land and um and setting up camp and and starting a new a new government so decolonization must be the opposite of that we've got to break down everything and go back basically reverse history but in some of the stuff that I've heard you speak and talk about, it seems like you're coming much more from a place of decolonizing, I guess, your mind and the the mental construct and trying to step out of that. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, decolonization, I think, has been my work for a while. And um, by my work, I mean I have been meticulously unpacking my own mind you know and that's where the work starts with each individual um for me it is not taking cues from the mainstream society um you know things like consuming fashion uh consumption in general at such a high rate i 
I kind of abolished my 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 stance around fashion about four years ago, and I'm happy to say I haven't bought a piece of new clothing in that time. Um, it is about creating we behaviors rather than I. So looking at how we can be symbiotic with our community and how we can, you know, it's coming about a lot more in the next generations, but social enterprises, creating sustainable businesses that give back. Um, it's also about unpacking the way that we enforced, um, systems of oppression and that is is looking at the way that we uphold the ideas of money and status in this society as the go-to point you know and this is something that all of us do we do it with our children our nieces our siblings our parents um you get accoladed for being seen as academic or for being seen as hitting a high paying job um but you don't necessarily get those same accolades if you are able to farm better than anybody else, if you are able to go out on vision quests and spend time in nature, if you're able to um, you know, be part of animal activism or um, conservation or regeneration. Like, I think it's a mindset that needs to change around what the important things are in our society and to really make those things sexy again you know because <laughs> yeah. everything in mainstream media what our children consume is based on fame monetary status and and this idea of these kind of really exploit exploit um jobs that exploit you know the earth and each other as being the pinnacle of success and you know you can ask many people who have hit fame early on um what it feels like to be famous and i'm sure a lot of them would say lonely yeah i think a lot of people talk about um similar with monetary wealth you know like a lot of people make a lot of money and that doesn't necessarily bring happiness or it doesn't necessarily bring joy and contentment and um, a feeling of fulfillment and um, something that makes me think about is there's an, uh, an American author who um, talks about, his name's Charles Eisenstein and he talks about um, how wealth and wealth is not money in your bank account and it's not physical objects because that stuff could disappear at any time. You know, it's not security. Um, it's only secure as long as your bank account is secure. But being held in community and being um, being being loved and supported and interconnected into community, that's wealth. Because if you ever need help, if you ever um, if you're ever in trouble, or if you can ever help anyone, that's what's gonna that's what's going to hold you in security and that's true wealth and things like growing your own food that's true wealth right um non-reliance on massive global supply chains and the money in your bank account that's true wealth so i totally agree with you in that the way in which we view success in society is breeding a lot of discontentment and whether it's just the the time in my life or whether that I'm feeling this or whether it is actually true but I do feel like there is a groundswell of people that are more and more waking up to this idea that the construct that we've been living in is not how it's supposed to be there is a greater undercurrent or maybe as Carl Jung would call it a um, collective unconscious of something's not right and discontent and we've got to start moving away from it. Do you feel like there's hope and optimism on this front going into the future? Do you feel the same way? Um, I would like to think so, but um, I guess I'm, you know, in a situation currently finding 
myself in in these places of butting my head up against a wall you know my work can only go a certain way before it's kind of rejected by the mainstream I'm um, constantly <laughs> underpinned in this area when it comes to trying to find a home because on paper I don't look um, the part you know and unfortunately in in gentrified communities where um you know, where people have lived for a long time, who have been living sustainably, who have been really paving the way for us to um, learn how to live more in tune with nature. What I find is that, that those people end up actually being outcasted, you know. And so I would like to think, and I do think that there is a way forward and a hopeful way forward and, um I, I believe in human beings, you know, I believe in this community, I believe in um, my friends here and the people that walk aside me and the people that don't even, you know, but what I don't believe in is this system and mm. I think that is really like got all of us on, on strings playing puppets and it's, it's really going to take some strong, hard work for us to reflect on how we keep upholding these systems and allowing um, these spaces to be really run by something that keeps the majority of people uh, on the fringes. I believe in people too and and I don't believe in the systems either and it's making me think of a, um, a friend that I had at university who – she was really passionate about um, – we both volunteered with Engineers Without Borders through our university and she was really passionate about social equity and environmental issues and, and, and you know, we really resonated and connected on a lot of those values. Um, and then as we were finishing our studies, um, I studied chemical engineering and – don't ask me why um, – and um, – like the pressure was there to go and apply for jobs with all these big companies and a huge majority of them were like mining and oil and gas companies. And I remember we both went for this job interview at Origin um, and I didn't get it because they could plainly see that I was not the right person for the job, but she did. And then she popped up on like, like my LinkedIn or something years later and she's still there and she's an oil um, – no, she's a gas pipeline engineer, right, with Origin. And I reflect and go, it's crazy because we would talk about and, and hold events and try to advocate for, you know, all of this um, Engineers Without Borders, which is all these amazing values and projects that we were trying to support. How did she end up going down that path? And that's the system shaping, right? And it, it, it's not maybe one event. It's a series of events that just nudge people in that direction over time and just mold them into that to fit that that mold and i guess how do we how do we how does how does someone step out of that how what can someone do to to start the process of decolonizing what can someone do to try to be an ally and to to try to change? Um, I mean, I think one of the greatest things that we can do is use our money um, and money being a, a form of energy, you know. For a really long time I was quite resistant to money um, except seeing some really amazing people that I know who have taken money and put it into incredible organisations that are just doing amazing work both here in Byron but also all around the world and I think that's really where change is. Um, but I, I really beg that people reflect upon where they spend their money um, and how they wear exploitation. I mean, fashion being one of the biggest contributors not only to pollution, we constantly talk about oil and mining and gas, but fashion is the second biggest polluter in this world and it's something that's glorified and it's glorified in our community and um it's also quite targeted towards young women and the way that their social status is with their reflection of their beauty. And so I think like 
are you wearing Nikes and where are those Nikes made? And how many young brown girls had to be exploited for you to wear a $120 pair of shoes? And you can then continue that and see where we are implementing and other colonial systems going into and I use the terminology third world as not my own because I think actually the third world countries are places of very rich culture where they have um, a very strong allyship with nature but because of corporations and our need and greed in these countries to have a rotating wardrobe we're imposing those same colonial systems that ruined a rich culture here into those places so I guess the first point of call I would beg for people to look at that Mm. and look at how much of their money they're spending on online shops that aren't going back into their community. Look at ways in which we can support people who are doing um, really amazing land management, who are trying to return to, I guess, an ancestral way of living, which is looking at ways to slow down and, and change our mindset around fast equaling success because that mentality has also gotten us where we are, that need for immediacy, mm-hmm. um, that need for now, 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 you know, and I see it even within the renewable energy space is that it's a Band-Aid solution. And what a lot of people don't talk about when they look at renewable energies and the technological future is e-waste and also the mining that goes in to creating all of those things, which may seem like a, definitely a better solution than the one that we're using now with fossil fuels, but in the long run, is it going to be more detrimental? And I think that's just it's really hard to slow down. It is hard. It goes against our philosophy. We want to create. We want to be the first to do this. We live in a highly competitive culture. Um, Yeah, I I think those are some good places to start, and I think there's a lot of work to be done there, so I'm sure it won't be easy feat. Yeah. On the um, on the environment and renewable energy front, one thing that has really um, really been quite, I guess, quite a profound experience for me because I was um, indoctrinated through the, the 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 engineering and then the like classic quote unquote like corporate sustainable kind of system and things like cutting emissions to this number and hitting this renewable energy target right and that world and even that is a a a symptom of our construct right trying to quantify what's the number we need to hit and how do we pull this lever to achieve you know environmental success right and just come back to environmental degradation and climate change and extreme weather events are the symptom of the underlying cause which is our disconnection from nature and our damaging of nature and our um, digging up of land and our deforesting of trees. Um, and instead of trying to jump to solution mode, what will fix it? What's the quick fix? Stepping more into what's the deeper cause? Why, why have we created the world that we're in? And what's the mindset shift and the, the reconnection? that needs to happen and if we do that all these other issues climate change being real and numbers will just go away it's just superfluous debate right if we actually just come back to connecting with nature connecting with other connecting to communities it feels like that is the the deeper starting point yeah and a lot of that is embedded in you know, this philosophy of localization as well. And and it's not about obliterating a global community, but I do believe that globalization is also a byproduct of colonization, you know, and that we need to really look whether um, we're gaining from from that. Because as far as I can see, there's not much conversation about 
um, global trade when it comes to emissions. And in fact, they are only ever increasing. And the fact that we're fishing in New Zealand, sending it to China for cheap labor to then send it back to New Zealand to then import it to be on the supermarket shops in Australia is that is just fundamentally what is wrong with globalization at a very simplistic view. So I think like thinking about where we spend our money in that respect is important too. And looking at really powerful communities, like we're really lucky in the Shire. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like this is a comfortable place to be an activist, but that's because I have a lot of like-minded people around me. Um, I guess the problem is trying to create patterned kind of communities like that which are replicated all over this country and that that will be the challenge you know because it is hard to speak out against a community of people that aren't like-minded to you and I know that when I do go to cities I definitely feel I'm the minority (laughs) yeah but the most what I'm hearing is that the most radical thing you can do and the most powerful thing you can do are some of the really simple things like grow your own food don't engage in damaging supply chains consider where you're putting your money and where it's coming from and also consider the needs and wants of others before assuming we have to go to this solution or go down this path yeah, and glorifying our next generation that success is tied to money and, and, and status, I think is a really important thing too, you know? And as we start to unpack these things and we don't implement our own, um, maybe corrupted values and morals onto our children, that's how we can really see change. Because I think with one generation, there could be change, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are so many other things that come along with, with that that I could go into but I think that would take up a lot of airtime. No, we we um I feel like I could sit here and chat with you all day, but I'm very conscious of your time and you've just driven back from Sydney. So, uh, I think we might rein it in there, but Ella, I I would love to do it again sometime in the future. Um and maybe we can go down one of these other tangents that we could have easily gone on, but I just want to say thank you again. Thank you so much for giving your time and your your wisdom thank you <laughs> cool cool hope that wasn't too soon no no it was good it was good but i mean what did what did you think yeah <laughs>